I learned that I had cancer. I went through chemo, I had surgeries, et cetera. I was changed after that. I couldn't deny how finite I was after that happened. I, it forced me to say, are you living what matters the most to you? I'm Carly Zakin. I'm Danielle Weisberg. Welcome to Skim from the Couch. This podcast is where we go deep on career advice from women who have lived it, from the good stuff like hiring and growing a team to the rough stuff like negotiating your salary and giving or getting hard feedback. We started the skim from a couch, so what better place to talk it all out than where it began on a couch? Hey everyone, this show might sound a bit different today because we're skimming from three different couches. The skim is still working from home for the time being because of COVID-19. Today, Claire Babineau-Fontenot joins us on Skimmed from the Couch. She is the CEO of Feeding America, the nation's largest domestic hunger relief organization. Feeding America provides more than 4 billion meals to more than 40 million people across the country. Claire, thank you so much for joining us today. Welcome to Skimmed from the Couch. Well, thank you so much for having me. We are thrilled to talk to you. You have a fascinating story, so we're going to get into it. But first, we're going to ask you what we ask all guests on the show, skim your resume for us. Ah, so first to go to high school and my uh, to graduate, parents didn't graduate from high school. So everything I'm going to say, a list of firsts. So I have an undergraduate degree. I've got an LLM in taxation. I'm a lawyer by training. I have worked in government and big four accounting in a major law firm and at Fortune One. That would be Walmart in Northwest Arkansas. And it's now my privilege to be the CEO of Feeding America, as you just mentioned. What's something that we can't Google about you? That had I my druthers, my real fantasy would have been to sing background vocals for Luther Vedros. <laughs> Do you have a good voice? Uh, no. Okay. okay. No, not really. Though my kids, I think they seem to like it, but they just know any better. So we're going to talk about how you grew up. And when we usually talk about, you know, people's professional story, you know, obviously we're all shaped by how we grew up and our family dynamic and, you know, only children versus having siblings versus just different family structures. Danielle and I each have one sibling and we talk a lot about that dynamic. You have more than one sibling and I would love for you <laughs> to, to share a little bit more about that. Boy, do I have more than one sibling. In fact, I usually, ladies, will use this to warm up an audience when I'm going to give a speech. I'll ask them, how many brothers and sisters do you think I have? They never guess 107. I'm sorry, say that one more time. 107. I thought it was a typo as we were doing prep for this. 107. So uh, your listeners will quickly say biology must not be the only thing involved here. So (laughs) um, through birth, adoption, foster care, I'm one of 108 kids. And I love that you early on asked that question because I do think it informs everything that matters about me was shaped by that fact. That is a lot of people. 
And I cannot imagine saying that that amount of people are in my family, let alone my siblings. I really want to understand like what that dynamic was. And like your parents sound like extraordinary people that they were able to give to so many individuals and to really provide a home for so many children. I mean, literally just like walk us through the very tactical things. How many people lived in the house? Like how many of your siblings' names do you know? Okay. I'm sure I know all of my siblings' names. Okay. And it's probably the reason that I remember people's stories more than their names now because I've used up all capacity I have for <laughs> retention. It's all that I've ever known. So my parents learned of two little kids in a neighboring town who were suffering from neglect and abuse. My dad was at work, in fact. Uh, my mom was working from home and she got in, in the car and picked them up <laughs> and brought them home. So I've never known anything but this. It's through the eyes of my friends that I came to realize how bizarre it was. So there were never more than 16 of us at home, living at home at the same time. But there were many times when there were 16 of us living at home at the same time. And what was something really unique about our family, of course, the numbers are are big. But the other thing is that I love the way you talked about family because I've always had a sense of what it means to be family that feel a little different than maybe some of the conventional thoughts around what it means to be family. So family for us, inordinately, we were not biologically connected. So that's not what brother or sister meant in our household. I had a lot more brothers than I had sisters. I have a lot more brothers (laughs) than I have sisters. I was rough and tumble with my brothers And with my sisters, we engaged a lot in activities together. And often they were outside. (laughs) Because my mom mom would say, okay, it's time for you to go outside. So we would line up and we'd all go outside and find ways to commune outside. One of the things that really stuck out for one of my friends, and maybe it might be something that would help you guys to have a sense of of who we were. So imagine a Walton table. That's what we called it, you know, a big table. We weren't uh, typical in that sense that we didn't often all sit at the table at one time, but just for us to eat and we ate big meals, supper, not dinner, but supper, you know, meat, rice, et cetera. In order to cook enough for all of us, we'd have to cook in pots that cut across two burners. Oh my God. Wow. (laughs) So imagine that. We're going to talk about your career, but I I have an important question. Do you have a family group text? We do. How many people are on it? We know how to break it. We have not been able to do all of them. (laughs) There is no way to actually get all of us on one group text. So we've got family group text clusters. Oh my gosh. How do you think, I mean, obviously this is not an environment that most people grow up in. What do you think you took from it? that you've put into your leadership style that you've noticed is different than other people? The two things that come to mind immediately. And one of them is that we had such a diverse household. So we had different races, different religions, different levels of, if for want of a better expression, ability, if you will, different challenges. Not all of us started in the same place. So some things that naturally evolved from that was I've always had this really, really deep sense of gratitude. 
I have lots of flaws, trust me. Hopefully we won't cover most of those. But among my vices is not ingratitude because I've always had a, a strong sense of the fact that my siblings didn't earn what they were getting uh, before they got to our home. So I've always understood, I've always had this awareness of inequities. So that's one of them. Another one is the power of diversity. Because we, I grew up in a small rural town, there are lots of things I didn't even know I was supposed to believe. I didn't even know society thought some of those things. Like I didn't know that society had certain isms around ability. Like even something as basic as I have a brother named Jonathan and he's never been very tall. I didn't know that he wasn't supposed to be the person that I threw the ball to in basketball. In our family, everybody went into the backyard and everybody got a chance to play. Everybody got the ball. Right. Yeah. Um, so I just learned things that just became a part of who I am and how I approach the world, like trying to give people opportunities, working not to allow what I'm supposed to believe about people like this person to influence how I interact with that person. I learned all those things growing up in that family. And then another one that was an invaluable, invaluable thing that my mother taught me. Uh, so well was my mom had great expectations for every single one of us. Most of my siblings, in fact, suffered from, again, to become a part of our family, you would have suffered from neglect, abuse, or some combination of neglect, abuse. Many of my siblings had learning disabilities. And sometimes people will ask me, so you're a lawyer, how many of you are doctors and lawyers? And I usually, I'll say something like, oh, well, there's some of us. But let me tell you something else that's more important. Of 108, only one of us is not self-sustaining right now. Wow. That is extraordinary. I have one brother who still lives at home. Wow. Wow. And that's extraordinary. That is, exactly. That's huge. So I learned about expectations in that yeah. household. I learned about my own privileges. I learned about diversity. I learned about inclusion. And I learned about how powerful high expectations are. And then I went out into the world and learned about how devastating low expectations can be too. And I'm glad that I didn't know some of those things. I'm glad society didn't get to teach me mm -hmm. before my parents did <laughs> and before yeah. my siblings did uh, as it related to those. And I absolutely work really hard at bringing each of those to the work that I do every day. You end up leaving home. And as you started at the top of the show, were a lot of firsts in your family and got your education and started really um, making your way up the, the corporate ladder. And you're in Arkansas and working for Walmart. And 2015 became a really critical year in your life. And I want you to sort of paint a picture of kind of who you were in 2014 and then who you were in 2016 and what happened in the middle. Absolutely. So, and it's perfect that you say 2014 because it's in 2014 that I took up running. So I'd never been a runner. I used to make fun of runners and say, oh, they'd say their knees were starting to give out when they're in their 40s and 50s. So, well, mine are like a baby's knees. I haven't used them very much, so I'm good. But I started running. So I was in the what I believe to be the best shape of my life in 2014. And from a career perspective, 
I was like Bubba when he won the Masters and they asked him, <laughs> how did you think it was going to feel to wear that, that green blazer? And he said, I didn't dream that far. I mean, my career had exceeded my expectations, but I always was operating with an understanding, as I said very early on, about the want in the world, the inequities in the world, the different cards people get dealt. And I, I always was trying on the side to do something about that. So I'm moving along and every now and then I'd even pat myself on the back for the fact that I had this full-time job and I was on the board of directors for CASA, which is a fabulous national organization. And, but I had time, I felt. So I kept forgetting to go get my physical, my executive physical. Walmart paid for it. And I could go anywhere I wanted to get my executive physical. So I kept forgetting to get it. I finally decide I'm going to start getting my physical on my birthday weekend. Okay? Then I won't forget. I'm not going to forget my birthday. Please, everyone who's listening, get physicals regularly. So I went in to get my physical on my birthday weekend in 2015. And what I hadn't thought about was that I might get bad news. And I learned that I had cancer. And... I remember sitting there going, what? I'm a runner. I'm in the best shape of my life. I'm young. What do you mean? So I had to confront my mortality in ways that were really profound for me. And I'm doing so well in my career. And I kept moving up, kept getting more responsibilities. And the doctors told me, because I'm so privileged, I had access to great medical care. And doctors told me that it had been detected early, that my prognosis was going to be good. And it is. I just five years, by the way. Oh, that's huge. Congratulations. And after the doctors explained that, and I went through chemo, I had surgeries, et cetera. But I was changed after that. I couldn't deny how finite I was after that happened. Uh, it forced me to say, are you living what matters the most to you? Is this really the way you want to live your life? And I've, in fact, I remember explicitly asking myself, what if the last thing that you ever get to do professionally is the last thing that you could do at Walmart? Would that be okay? And my answer was no. So I started leaving Walmart. <laughs> and, um, and when I left, I knew that I was leaving a lot of things behind. And many people thought it was foolish of me to do that. But one of my benefits throughout my career, I've had this very remarkable career. I've always had passion for my work. I always was energized to go in. And I noticed that I lost the energy to go into Walmart. And I don't think that was fair to them. And I didn't think I would ever get that energy back or that work. So as I said, I started the process. I, I had a very long transition at Walmart because it wasn't an anti-Walmart mm -hmm. move. It was a pro-me move and what I wanted to do with my life. I'm listening to you talk and obviously you had such a, you know, as you said, a profound encounter like with your own mortality you know, for those that are listening, I want to kind of take away that extreme of the situation, but I think everyone has different crossroads in, in their life, in their career path, different moments that just kind of make you go like, what am I doing? And I think it takes a lot of guts to like identify how to be pro me. How do you identify like, what is pro you? What does that mean and how to find that? Yeah. I'll tell you that I think 
I think more often than not, people know. They just might not like the answer or they might be afraid of the answer. But more often than not, people know. And the people who know them well know too. So as an example, it was pro me for me to be a lawyer. How did I know? So I would go to my dad when I'm a little girl and say, daddy, daddy, a guy who didn't get to graduate from high school, whose grand, whose parents were sharecroppers. I said, daddy, I'm going to be a lawyer. And he says, that makes perfect sense, little girl, because you argue all the time. Somebody's going to pay you to do it. I was supposed to be an advocate. I was supposed to be a lawyer. So I think there's a voice inside of you that tells you what you're built to do. And then there's a little voice inside of you that tells you don't take the chance of trying to do that. So I don't think that your listeners are likely to not know what they're built to do. I hope my story helps to affirm that sometimes it works out remarkably well when you listen. You obviously learned a really big lesson in taking care of yourself, making time to get the physical. You work in hunger relief. That is not a casual, low stakes job. How do you make sure you're taking care of yourself now? First, context. I don't always do it well, but this mission needs me to do it better and better all the time. And I am getting better, in fact. But at the beginning of this crisis, we have people out in the field who are putting their lives at risk in order to deliver food to people who need it. And I knew that. So I didn't feel comfortable with sleeping. How can, how can I be sleeping There are people who are desperately hungry, who are afraid. There are kids who are going to go to bed tonight and they won't have food in their bellies. There are parents who are going to put their their kids to bed tonight without food in their belly. And then there are people on the ground trying to make sure that that doesn't happen. So it did have put in this layer of feeling of responsibility that I had. And I didn't notice that it was translating into me not sleeping. And keeping my phone right next to my bed and waking up at different points in the evening, at night, jumping up and looking at my phone to make sure that no message came through that I needed to respond to. And so I had a lot of trouble at the beginning, but I am rather introspective. And I I do know that part of my wiring is that I I feel responsible, but, but not burdened as a leader. And my responsibility as a leader, a large part of it is to lead by example. So as I noticed that pattern with myself, I started paying attention. That pattern was happening throughout our organization. All of the leaders around me, and I refer to people as leaders, not just based upon title. We've got Mm -hmm. a bunch of leaders, hundreds of leaders, thousands of leaders in this work. But all of these leaders, I was providing a terrible example for And although I wasn't talking about how many hours I was working, they could tell because I was sending out emails or I handled something and they're like, well, when did she even get a chance to do that? Oh, she must have done it overnight. So the big thing that drove me to start working on self-care was actually not self (laughs) as much as thinking about what the implications were for this mission that I care so desperately for and for these people that I get to work with that I've grown to love the people that I work with. So now with that revelation, with that 
slap in the face, I then had to start doing something about it. So what have I done? First off at Feeding America, we came together and we talked about whether I was the only one who was feeling like that. And I learned, no, we were all feeling like that. So we acknowledged where we were. I've tried to be honest and transparent about where I am at a moment in time. We tried to make room for each other to be where they, where we, we were. And we actually got in some experts who came in and talked to us about self-care, about the meditative arts, if you will. And people, some people get to it through prayer and others through yoga and different ways. But this challenge that we need to find the thing that works for us. Where do I find stillness? Where do I give myself room to not be active, but to be still? So I'm a calendar-centric kind of person. So it's on my calendar (laughs) to engage in self-care. I mix it up. For me, it's different things at different times, but I have to do something. I took off and I had not taken off. I'd worked, it was at least 65 consecutive days. I stopped and I said, okay, no. And I unplugged completely for the weekend. And I had been so snarky on that Friday. And I'm like, why am I being so snarky? I like these people. I respect that person. And yet I'm just being rude and snarky. And like, what is going on? After that weekend of full decompression, when I got back on the Monday, I had returned to me. I'm like, hey, yeah. So I think I'm glad it kind of happened that way. Sorry for the persons that I was snarky with on the Friday. But I was kind of glad it happened in such stark terms for me, that it was hugely different and my day was different and my impact was different on the people around me. So that's what I'm doing one day at a time, one step at a time. Obviously, we're going through a lot as a country. And one of the big things we've been going through is food insecurity, I think, is being thought of in a a much different way, given the moment that we're in with COVID. I cannot imagine how difficult your job has been uh, being at the helm of Feeding America, tackling these issues through a pandemic. I'm going to ask this question, but it's such a misnomer. What do you think good leadership looks like at this time? Because we've never had a time like this. So I feel like it's unfair to ask you, but also everyone's trying to figure out a way through it. And what you guys do is so directly linked to this moment. Of course, I start with a disclaimer. I don't have all the answers. But one of the things I would absolutely say in response to that is great leaders aren't threatened by great leaders. They surround themselves with them. I have an aspiration to be a great leader. I have worked in the two years before this pandemic that I was at Feeding America, one and a half years. I have been successful in recruiting and in retaining some remarkable people. And I believe that in these moments that one of the biggest mistakes we can make is to try to do it all ourselves. Thank heaven the 53, 54 million people that we expect to be food insecure as a a result of this pandemic, they're not going to just be counting on this one lady with a funny French name from Louisiana, right? They don't have to. So I think surrounding yourself by brilliant, hardworking, dedicated leaders, powerful people, helping them to see their power, empowering them to the extent that you can, 
then that's one of the biggest things I think that a leader can do so that the moment of crisis, you can all come together and put all these heads together. And then the mission gets the benefit of that collective instead of just one person. So I think that's a really big part of it. And I believe it's been sustaining for us. You gave some statistics at the beginning. And I thought about the first time I heard those statistics that we're feeding about 40 million people that there are about 37 million people in the country who were food insecure, that we were providing uh, somewhere between four and five billion meals a year. And when I heard those, I was shocked by those numbers. That was when I joined Feeding America. Those represent the first time that we returned to pre-recession rates of food insecurity in this country since the last recession. Those are not the numbers anymore. I didn't think I'd look back and think, oh, those were better days. Right. When there were nearly 40 million people who were food insecure, now we're looking at 54 million. When I think about actually like what that looks like, what that means, it's like you can't believe that that is happening in the United Here. States. Exactly. What can our listeners do? How can people help? People who are listening to this right now, there's obviously, you know, we invited you on this podcast because you have an amazing career story. And we wanted to hear it, but also like what you do every day is incredible. And what can people do to help? They can certainly help. So let me go through a quick list of things that people can do. Uh, The first one is to choose to have your eyes open. So educate yourself on what hunger looks like in this country, what it looked like before COVID and what it looks like now. Decide it's unacceptable. Once we get there, there's lots we can do from there. Feeding America is part of a network That includes 200 food banks, 60,000 agency partners, and 2 million volunteers around the United States. If they went to feedingamerica.org, you can be educated inside of that website. Uh, You can certainly make donations, and we certainly need help in that department, food and funds. You can also find a food bank in the community that you care the most about. We're national and local. So you can go in, and we've got a little food bank locator. You put in the zip code, and it'll tell you, this is the food bank that serves your community that you care so much about. And you can go directly to that food bank to make, do outreach to help in that community. But the other thing is, right now, there's so many things that we've been arguing about as a country. There are certain things that just shouldn't be subject to debate. We should expect Congress, for instance, to prioritize vulnerable communities. We should use our voices to ask that they do. Feeding America is a nonpartisan organization. When I say nonpartisan, this is what I mean. It's different than bipartisan. Nonpartisan for us means we have a data-informed way of understanding what the tools are that would be helpful to people facing hunger in this country. And we stand with them. And there are moments in time when people who self-identify as progressives stand with them too. And when they do, they stand with us because we stand with them. And there are moments in time when people who self-identify as conservatives stand with them. When they do, they stand with us because we stand with them. So we keep ourselves focused on the interventions that will help people facing hunger. And that should be something that we can all agree on. So asking Congress to go to the table and to talk together about how we do come up with interventions that are going to be helpful. Things like SNAP, uh, which used to be called food stamps. Two quick data points about SNAP. 
one for every one meal that our remarkable food bank network can provide. SNAP can provide nine for every $1 invested in SNAP. According to the last recession, for every $1 invested, the return in the economy is $1.70. And if you really think about it, if you make an, if you give someone something and it's only value, number one, they're in desperate need and it's only value is in its use. You can't put it in the bank, store it away. You can't invest it differently. If it's for food, they're going to use it to get food. It creates jobs. So there's so many good reasons why we ought to be really, really energized around interventions that we know are helpful. And those, those are two quick ones. So feedingamerica.org, absolutely. Educate yourself. Decide hunger in America is simply not acceptable. And then go out there and do something about it. Last round, favorite round, our lightning round. Are you a morning person or a night owl? Morning person. What time do you wake up? 4.30 a.m. No, you don't. Oh, why? why? You know you don't have I'm, to. I am wired to. I am married and, and my husband is not a morning person. And yet after 32 years, we're still together. Go figure. So 4.30 in the morning, rain, shine, work, holiday. What's the last show you binge watched? Okay, I just finished binging. Oh, what's the name of it? It's on the, the top of the lake is the name of it. Epic. Season one was awesome. Okay, what percentage of your siblings' names does your husband know? Oh my goodness, that's a really good one. I'm going to have to go test him on it. I'd say there are about 45 of us who get together regularly. So he knows them, right? Okay. There are some uh, that I haven't even gotten to see in a very long time. Uh, so he wouldn't know them. And of the 45 or so of us, I say he knows them, but he doesn't necessarily know every name. <laughs> and around Christmas, we'll get together or something. And, and I know he wants to act like he knows all the names. So if I want something special for Christmas, maybe I blackmail the man. <laughs> you know? Wait, actually, I have another, I have a, I have a question from that. How many okay. nieces or nephews do you have? Oh my goodness, hundreds, hundreds and hundreds. I do not have a count. Oh, you need to find that out. I need to figure that out. I do not have a count. I do not have a count. But on average, most of us have kids. And I'd say most of us who have kids, we have at least two. Does anyone have like a crazy number? Well, I know who has the most grandkids. I have a sister <laughs> who has like about 30 grandkids, it feels. I think the most that we have, nobody comes close. Oh, Sonny. Okay, Anthony, my brother Anthony has, as of the last count, he had 12 children. Wow. All biological children. Oh, wow. Yeah. And I said as of last count, because every time he, he and his wife have a kid, you know, I'd be like, so are you guys about done? And then one of them will smile. And I'm like, I don't think they're done. Oh, my. Wow. <laughs> okay, that is a great place to end. Claire, thank you so <laughs> much for, having, for being on the show. Oh, thank you guys so much for having me. And thanks for giving me a chance to talk with you about who I am. Thanks especially for giving me a chance to talk about the work that we're doing at Feeding America. Hi, everyone. We're trying something new. During this time of economic uncertainty, we want to take a moment to spotlight some new female-founded companies. 
We've heard from many incredible skimmers who are leading small businesses, and we will be introducing them to you each week on Skim from the Couch. See the link in our episode description for how to submit yourself or a friend. Hi, I'm Julie Bornstein. I am the founder and CEO of The Yes. The Yes is a new shopping platform. Right now, it's app only for iOS, and it is a store built around each person. So what happens is you take a quick Q&A and then basically you have your own feed and that feed is tied to the things you've told us about the styles and your sizes and things like that and brands, of course. And then um, as you shop, you yes and no items you like or don't like and it gets smarter over time. The best analogy we use is it's kind of like Spotify or Pandora, but for shopping, for clothes. The problems we were looking to solve on the consumer side were for kind of the overwhelm of shopping online. And so as we all know, we've spent lots of time on websites going through 12 pages of midi dresses to try and find the one or two that are interesting to us. And you know whether you see it on page two or page 12, you know, you sort of feel like I have to absolutely see everything to find that right thing. So that is sort of the first problem we're trying to solve is why can't the shopping experience adapt to me? And as it starts to learn the things that I like, can't the five mini dresses that I like show up on page one? The second problem we're trying to solve is that the department stores are shrinking and the brands are looking for new ways to find customers. Um, and customers are sort of want to make sure they know what's new and interesting, but it's exhausting to go to a million sites and you don't necessarily know all the new cool brands. So the idea of giving the brands a new outlet to meet customers and vice versa was really the second problem we're trying to solve. I have been thinking about starting a company for a long time, and I had many different moments where I wanted to. So right after college, went to work for Donna Karen. I was always really interested in fashion. And when I was um, leaving, I really wanted to start a denim bar, but it was 1993, and there were truly no capital markets for young founders, female or male. Um, it just didn't exist, and it was pre-internet. Then... Um, I went back to business school. I worked briefly in banking and then um, I joined Nordstrom as Nordstrom was just launching e-commerce. It took me about six months of begging Dan Nordstrom to hire me, but he did. And um, it was a really fun couple of years. When I left after five years, I thought I had an idea to start something and Dan talked me out of it. Um, he said, let's see, I think I was pregnant with my second kid at that time. And he said, you definitely do not want to start a company. It's, you know, the chance of it working is so low and it's a horrible lifestyle. So we ended up instead moving to Philadelphia for Urban Outfitters, where I um, helped them build and grow e-commerce. We found our way back to San Francisco when I went to join Sephora. And after I left Sephora, I joined Stitch Fix. And at that time, I was first a board member and an advisor and investor. And then I joined full-time for a few years as COO. You know, I, I felt like when I started there, uh, part of my hypothesis was I've wanted to start a business so many times. I'm going to go work in a startup and see how it feels and learn what I need to learn and decide if I actually want to do it myself. And I would say that was a very confirming experience. We started the company in the beginning of 2018. So we basically planned, we raised money, closed our funding in 
February, started hiring the, hiring the team in March and April. So we had been working on this for two years. And I knew that we needed to raise enough money to really build this highly complex technology product and also sign up hundreds of brands. And so I assumed it would take 18 months and ended up taking two years. So we had planned to launch after all this work with about 20 engineers and four brand partnerships people um, in March and then COVID hit. And we really, we were ready, but the world was not ready and the time was so clearly not right. So we made the call. I was probably the last one to fall. I just so wanted to do this. We had put so much into this to hold off on launching. The truth is it allowed us to improve the product because you're never ready, of course, with your product. And so we ended up deciding to wait and watch. We decided that, you know, we needed to get out there. Even if it felt more like a soft launch, you know, it was what it was. We needed to get people on this app. We needed to get their feedback. And, you know, we felt like, gosh, there's so much heavy news right now. And there are people, you know, a lot of people at home scrolling uh, on their phones. And so, you know, it may not be sort of the right moment to be thinking about fashion as it relates to sort of the world at large, but it certainly, we get a lot of feedback and it was a, a nice distraction in an otherwise heavy time. And so we launched in May, on May 20th. We know that business today is not like it will be post-COVID. I mean, the truth is people are not dressing for work and they're not dressing to go out because they're not going out, but we are getting a lot of great feedback and we're selling a lot of t-shirts and shorts and comfortable dresses. The Skim community can find the Yes on the Apple App Store. And right now we're iOS only. We will be building web and Android in the future. And we would love everyone to try it and also to give us feedback and also maybe buy one thing from your, a brand you love or a brand you don't know because these brands need it. And you can find us on Instagram at the Yes. Thanks for hanging out with us. Join us next week for another episode of Skim from the Couch. And if you can't wait until then, subscribe to our daily email newsletter that gives you all the important news and information you need to start your day. Sign up at theskim.com. That's the S-K-I-M-M dot com. Two M's for a little something extra. 